About a year ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were talking about uh, ways that we could motivate our kids not to immediately spend all of their money. How could we motivate them to save some of the money? And so we shared a few different ideas, and uh, he shared his idea, which I thought was great. He said, I tell my kids that they can deposit their money or some of their money with me. They can deposit some of their money with the bank of dad and I will pay them interest for the money that they deposit. I said, man, that's a great idea. What is the going interest rate in your household? And he said, the going interest rate right now is 20% monthly. Now, that's better than any interest rate I have ever received on any investment I've ever made. So naturally, I asked him if I could get in on it, if I could uh, bring some of my money, not a lot, just some, so that I could also get that interest rate. And he, uh, he said to me, no, no, you are not uh, a part of the group that gets this deal. It only applies to my kids. And he said, in fact, not only does it only apply to my kids, but the window of time in which this offer applies is quickly closing because the children are driving me bankrupt. The kids had figured out the system, and so they were bringing more and more of their money, and the bank of dad didn't have the cash reserves all the time to pay off their interest. Now, I was giving him a hard time, of course, by asking him if I could be a part of it, but imagine for a minute that I really believed that it applied to me, that I didn't understand that this was a promise that was made to a particular group of people at a particular time. So I begin to believe it, and maybe for months, maybe for years, I take a bunch of my money and I set it aside on the future hope that he's going to give me my 20% interest monthly when I give it to him. Maybe I save uh, tens or hundreds or thousands of dollars, and then I find out that that offer doesn't apply to me and the window is closed. Right, that, could, that could actually have some very sad consequences for me, right? Because I would forfeit the opportunity to invest my money in places where I could actually get a return. Now, I share that because I think we all recognize that there are some promises that apply directly to us. And then there are other promises that are made to a particular group of people for a particular time period. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of those passages that that often what happens is people take the passage and they apply it uh, generally. They apply it, for example, to uh, Christians in the United States in 2019. But as we look at it, what we find is that 2 Chronicles 7.14, our passage for today, actually was made to a group of people, the nation of Israel, and not in 2019. It was made many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, to a different group. And one of the most challenging aspects of studying the Bible is often we run across passages like this. We run across passages that were written a long time ago to a different group of people, and we have to figure out, do they apply to us, and if so, how? Now, I want to be clear as we go into the message for today— We are a church that holds to the inerrancy and the authority of all of God's word. So we believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament are all scripture. They are all God's word. But we also hold that some portions of the scripture apply more directly to us than other portions of the scripture. And we're going to talk about why this morning. Because this is one of the most challenging aspects, again, of biblical 
interpretation. And I think the danger that we face is if we take a promise that was given to another group and we apply it directly to ourselves, again, we run the risk of believing things about God or what he's promised us that might not be true. So I want to look this morning at 2 Chronicles 7.14. Uh, it's a passage that you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard it quoted. Let me read it for us as we begin. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, no doubt you have seen this passage maybe on a banner at a church. Maybe you've seen it on a meme on Facebook. Maybe you've heard it quoted by a pastor. And what we're going to talk about this morning, like we're going to every week in this series, is how is the passage typically interpreted? And then secondly, why do I think that the typical interpretation of the passage misses the mark? And then thirdly, what does it actually mean and how do we apply it if it has any application to our lives today? So let me start uh, by talking about how it's typically interpreted. I'm going to give a few quotes from people who interpret it in the usual way. Some of these quotes are a little longer this morning. I think it's important that I read them so we get a sense of how the passage is utilized. So let me begin uh, with this one. This is from uh, a man named Phil Bryant. But before, actually, before I give you that quote, let me summarize my summary of how the passage is typically interpreted. Actually, no, we'll go right into the quote. Sorry. Sometimes you get confused about where your slides are. All right. So this is, this is from Phil Bryant, the former governor of the state of Mississippi. Here's what he says. Mississippi has sought this elusive blessing as we struggled to become one state. Our people have endured the harshest of times and treatment and still achieved greatness. This greatness, we pray, will exist in our time and for all time for Mississippi. For as it was written long ago, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. May this promise always be our guide and may God continue to bless Mississippi and the United States of America. So you see where he's going with this. Essentially what he's saying is this, Mississippi has historically been a great place. It is a great place. Now I've been to Mississippi debatable, right? But for the sake of argument, let's, let's just, let's for the sake of argument say he's right, right? Mississippi has been a great place. He's saying we want it to continue to be a great place, a place that is blessed economically, a place that perhaps is, is blessed in terms of uh, unity between different groups, a place that experiences the material and spiritual blessing of God. He says, if we want that, then we need to go back to this command from second Chronicles seven, this promise. If my people, that is us, right, which are called by my name, if we will humble ourselves, pray and seek God's face, then he will heal and bless our land. And he says, we want that to be true for Mississippi. So he says, that promise is for us. Let me give you another illustration. This is uh, opposite side of the political spectrum. Louis Farrakhan at the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. from 1995. He said, but we've had enough now. This is why you're in Washington today. We've had enough. We've had enough distress, enough affliction. We're ready to bow down now. 
If my people who are called by my name would just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Now, what's interesting about this is that Louis Farrakhan does not profess to be a Christian. He doesn't profess to be a person who believes in the scripture. Yet in the context of this speech, what he, what he was talking about was racial unity in the United States, right? And he says, if we want to have uh, this sort of unity amongst ourselves, what we need to do, the United States, is we need to repent and we need to ask God to come and bring this, right? He's not talking about the church. He's talking about our nation, right? The idea is here's a promise for the nation of America in 1995. If we follow this prescription, God will heal us from what ails us. Let me give you one more. This one's a little bit longer. This is from a pastor in Dallas. Let me read this quote. He says, for the first 160 years of our nation's history, every school child who went to school heard about God. They memorized his laws. The New England Primer was a textbook used in many, if not most, schools in this country. And that New England primer had verses from scripture about God that every student had to memorize in order to pass. About 60 years ago, we allowed the liberals, the secularists in this country, to engage in a social experiment. And the experiment was this. Let's expunge any mention of God from the public square, from the schools, from the government. Let's stop prayer. Let's stop Bible reading. Let's remove all of those things and see if we can still have a good society, a moral society without God. Well, guess what? No nation can reject God and be blessed by God. What is the cure for what is happening in the nation right now? It's the same solution that God gave more than 3,000 years ago to his people when he said in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their iniquities, and then I will heal their land. So you see where he's going. And I don't share this to pick on Pastor Jeffers, but simply to, to illustrate how the passage is typically used. You see where he's going with this. He's saying we used to have certain policies in place where we would pray in school, where we would read the Bible in school, where God was acknowledged. He says we don't have that anymore. But if we can go back, right, if we can repent of those decisions and go back, then God will come and he will restore to us what we maybe once had, the material and spiritual and political and military prosperity with which God has blessed this country historically. And so he says, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen is a promise for the church in America and the people of America in 2019. So let me summarize now uh, my summary of how the passage is typically used. This is how it's usually understood. If the citizens of the United States will pray and ask God for forgiveness, then he will restore our nation to material prosperity and spiritual Health. If the citizens of the United States will pray and ask God for forgiveness, then he will restore our nation to material prosperity and spiritual health. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about why I think that understanding of the passage misses the mark. Okay, and I want to be clear. It's not that I think everything that those who use the passage this way, it's not that I think everything they're saying is wrong. There are some principles that we can, that we can understand from the scripture that they're saying that I think are correct. 
But I don't think that understanding of the passage as applied to the United States hits the center of the bullseye in terms of interpretation of the passage. Okay, so we're going to talk about why. Before I dive into that, though, I want to make a couple of caveats because I know I run the risk this morning of offending everybody in the room. And that's not my goal. So let me make a couple of caveats about what I'm trying to do here and what I'm not trying to do. Okay, we will not be discussing whether specific policies are good or bad. In other words, you may have opinions about whether or not there should be state-sanctioned prayer in the public school system. I have opinions about that. You may have opinions about that. They are irrelevant to the discussion today. That's not what we're going to be discussing because as we dive into the passage, that's not even the issue of 2 Chronicles 7.14. We will also not be discussing whether or not the United States is the best country in the world or not. Okay, my goal is not to say that the U.S. is either superior or inferior to any other nation, partly because that's subjective, right? That's a measurement that you could take with a number of different yardsticks, but also because that, again, is not the point of the passage we're looking at today. What am I wanting to do as we move forward then? We will be discussing whether or not we can apply the promise of Second Chronicles 7.14 directly to the United States in 2019. That is, has God promised that if the people of America will uh, do a certain number of things spiritually? That he will bless us in the way that he promised in Second Chronicles 7.14 to bless the nation of Israel. That's the question we're going to ask. And if God has not promised that directly, then what is promised to us or what can we take out of this passage in order to apply? So that's where we're going to head this morning. And just like every week, the place where we're going to begin is I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question, why does the usual interpretation miss the mark? Why is it wrong? I just want to provide a few reasons why I don't think it hits the center of the bullseye. Okay, the first one is this. This promise was given to the nation of Israel and not to the United States. Okay, the promise was given directly to the people of God in the Old Testament. And that that may sound, at first glance, like a technicality, right? Because you say, well, it's all in the Bible, right? God promises people this. Has God not promised his people the same things all the time throughout Scripture? And the answer is, uh, no, he has not actually promised the exact same things to every group of people or every person throughout all of history. Okay, and we want to be careful whenever we're reading a passage where we see what appears to be a promise, we want to make sure we understand to whom is the promise made, right? So let me give an example. I know that some of you in the room are doctors, right? You're physicians. So imagine for just a second that you have a patient come in and that patient says, hey, I have hives. I break out in a terrible rash in the sun. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. Can you do something for me? And you say, absolutely, not only am I a doctor, but I am a Christian doctor. And so I utilize the principles of the scripture in my practice. So here is what you ought to do. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Right now, that's a promise. It's in the Bible. But the problem is it's not a promise made to you. Or to me, who was this promise made to? Well, it was made to Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, when he came to the prophet Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. Right? So, it's not about you or me. It's not about my hives. 
But the danger is if I pull that passage up right out of its context and I stick it onto me, I'm going to misapply it, first of all. Secondly, I'm going to spend a lot of money flying to Israel. And thirdly, be very disappointed. Because it is a promise, just not one made to me. Let me give you a couple of other illustrations. If you will not listen to me, I will continue striking you. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Now, this is less of a promise, right? More of a warning. Your behavior has a direct line to what is going to happen. You could use this as a parenting verse. (laughs) Right? That's one way you could use this. It would be wrong. Right? Because this passage is not written to your kids. It's written to the nation of Israel. And what we see in the scripture is that sometimes there are promises and warnings given to a particular group that are not given to every group. Okay, let me give you one more, also from Leviticus 26, that I think is going gonna, is gonna to hit closer to our passage for today. Okay, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. Okay, so if you do what is right, The rain will come when it's supposed to come and not when it's not supposed to come, right? So the question is this, if we have a drought in the state of Texas, is it because we didn't pray hard enough or we didn't do the right things? Or on the flip side, if it rains and rains and rains for months on end and drowns the crops and people cannot build the church buildings they're trying to build in the south part of town. Is it because we did something wrong and it's a direct judgment from God on our sin? Well, no, this is a promise made to the nation of Israel at a particular period of time. And we're going to delve into this just a little bit more later on in the sermon. But here's what's critical to understand. That throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they were gathered by God as, as an ethnic, physical kingdom on on a real piece of property on land and the idea was that God gathered them together and he said what I want you to do is I want you in this land that I have given you by the way by my grace I gave you the land what I want you to do is I want you to reflect me I want you to be like me be like my character right so in order to do that God lays out here is how your nation right your physical earthly nation ought to operate so that you all can represent me to the other nations around you right and God said I'm going to do this I'm going to bless you out of my grace as you represent me well why because I want all the nations around you to see that their gods are not true gods But Yahweh is the one true God. And so God had made a special covenant with the people of Israel that involved these blessings and curses related to the law. Okay, so it was for a particular group of people at a particular time. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. But I think, first of all, then, the usual interpretation misses the mark because the promise wasn't given to us. Okay, secondly, it misses the mark because the quote itself is incomplete. This is the same issue that we faced with the do not judge passage last week. That we can't take a passage and pull it up out of its context and apply it wholesale to any group of people at any period of time. Right? You may have noticed when I read the passage at the beginning, it doesn't actually begin with the word if. 
Okay, what has happened is there's an if back in verse 13 that typically when people quote it, they pull that if down into verse 14 in order to make the passage sound like a self-contained unit. Okay, but actually this passage begins with an and. All right, so for just a moment, let me read. If you have your Bible, I'm going to read from Second Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 11. I want, I want us to read a little bit of the context here. Verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Okay, so what what is the context? The context is the dedication of Solomon's temple. Then, verse 12, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. We'll come back to that because he says, I've heard your prayer. There's a previous prayer here that Solomon had prayed that's significant. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. What place? That's the temple, Solomon's temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. Hopefully you can see a little bit of what's going on, that God has made these promises to David. said, David, you're always going to have the right to have a descendant who will reign on the throne. But he says, Solomon, I recognize you're going to sin. And when you sin, there will be the curses of the law that are going to come on the nation of Israel. But if, if my people will return to this place, remember what, what had happened in the temple on a daily basis. Remember, the temple was constructed as a place to worship God. Prior to the physical temple in Jerusalem, they worshiped in the tabernacle, a tent. But now they're building a permanent temple where the people would bring offerings. And why did they bring offerings? Well, because of their sin. And then once a year, what would happen? The the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer up sacrifices for all of the people once a year for any sin that was forgotten, left out, that they didn't offer a sacrifice for throughout the year. That was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So what's going on at the temple? The people are supposed to come and say, God, we have sinned and we are giving this offering. To ask for your forgiveness. Now, the the bulls and the goats and the rams that they offered, those never took away their sin. But instead, they would ask for God's grace until such time that a permanent and forever sacrifice, which would come in Jesus Christ, could be made. Right, And so this all happened within the context of the nation of Israel. Now, I point that out again to say, anytime we're looking at a passage like this, we have to be careful. If somebody quotes to you a passage that begins with an and or a but or some other conjunction, and they stick it onto your life or their life with no context, always go read what is surrounding it. Let me give you a couple of other illustrations. Imagine for a moment that you and I get into a debate today, maybe about politics, maybe about religion, whatever it is, and you're beating me, right? 
So I'm losing. You are killing my arguments. And so in a moment of frustration, I say, look, I'm a pastor. I have a Bible verse for you. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. That's a principle from Scripture. And it's for you. You'd go, now, wait, what is actually going on in that passage? Well, this is Job talking to his friends who are spouting things about God that are not true. And he says, the best thing for you guys to do right now is shut your trap. Because you're wrong about God. Right? It's not a passage that says Matt always wins. I've been looking for that one for years. So we have to be cautious. Not to pull up a passage like 2 Chronicles 7 that begins with a conjunction and go, here's a principle. Let me give you one other illustration. A friend of mine, when she learned that I was going to be preaching this passage, she had seen a meme going around on Facebook with a Bible verse, and she sent it to me. I don't know how well you can read that from where you are, because it's in a beautiful script that you can't read. But it says, rise up, take courage, and do it. And that's from Ezra chapter 10. Rise up, take courage, and do it. It's very inspirational. It's very beautiful. What is the context of the passage? Well, Ezra is written after the people returned from the the Babylonian exile, right? And they're resettling on the land. Some of the people had intermarried with the pagan Canaanites, and they were being led astray again back into idolatry, right? So so they had these, these idolatrous wives who were pulling them away from the worship of God. And so Ezra, as a prophet, he says, hey, as the people of God, in this instance, we have to separate from these foreign idolatrous wives. He says, you got to do it. Rise up, take courage, and do it. So this is not an inspirational passage for your next 5K. But if you don't look at it in its context, you might think that. And so we have to be cautious to make sure we understand what's going on in the text before we apply it directly to us in this way. Okay, so the promise is given to Israel. Secondly, the quote is incomplete. And then thirdly, the third reason I think that the the normal interpretation misses the mark is a theological reason that I think is critical to what we're going to talk about today. All right, here it is. Our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. Okay, our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. Want. And I think the typical interpretation, whether it's directly stated or not, and whether the people who, who quote it this way even would consciously say they believe it, I think the typical interpretation can imply that if I am a good boy or girl and I pray the right things, God will give me the results I desire. And I think we can believe that on a national level as well. If we would only go back to a time where we were doing the right things and honoring God and reading the Bible in public, if only we would do that, then God would respond and he would give us material prosperity. He would give us military might. He would give us unity as a nation. He would lower the crime rate, right? See, so the the idea is if I put in these inputs... God will give me these outputs. And I think the danger is we begin to believe in a God who looks a lot more like Santa Claus than he does like the God of the Scripture. Right? Because see, the thing we forget is that even under the law, God's response to the people of Israel was always rooted in his grace. In fact, he says it over and over again. 
I'm not giving you anything because you've earned it. In fact, you know what you have done. You have worshipped idols. You have broken every single commandment on the books. They started pretty quickly with the first one when they made a golden calf. And yet God says, I still will lavish grace on you. Why? Not because you're a good boy or girl. Because I'm a gracious God. Right? The law only served ultimately to reveal that the people couldn't do it. And yet God was still gracious. It's interesting, uh, several months ago I was listening to an interview with a man who had once been a Christian singer and subsequently had decided that he no longer believes in God. He became an atheist. And in the interview, the interviewer asked him, he said, at what point uh, did you decide that God wasn't there? What was the turning point in your life or in your thought process? And it was interesting to hear his response. He said, well, here's what was going on. He said, I was having trouble in my marriage. I couldn't seem to make it work with my wife. And I had all of these challenges, and so I began to pray that God would fix it, that God would uh, change her responses to me and fix the situation and change my marriage, and nothing seemed to change, and it was hard. And he said, one day I just decided, you know what, if God doesn't fix this, maybe God's not there. Because he had believed in a God that if I pray hard enough, maybe I sing enough songs about him. Maybe I do enough good things. He'll fix what ails me. I wonder if you know what country has the highest percentage of evangelical Christians in the world. It's not the United States. It's Kenya in Africa. So so let's ask a question. Uh, Kenya also happens to be a country in which uh, a huge percentage of the population, almost more than any other country, live in extreme poverty. The governments historically have been quite corrupt. There's violence that runs through their nation as a bloody river. So let me ask this question. Are the evangelical Christians in Nigeria experiencing the judgment of God because they are worse Christians than the evangelical Christians of America? Same situation, by the way, in Nigeria. They have a higher percentage of Christians and a harder economy and a more violent country. So what are they doing wrong that we're doing right? All right, see, if that's the way God works then either God has not been faithful to his promises or, more likely, we've misunderstood what the promise says. Okay, so the question then we want to ask is this. What does the passage mean? If it doesn't mean the usual understanding, what does the passage mean? Here's my summary, and then I want to to dive into a few details. Under the law of Moses, the nation of Israel received material and spiritual blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now remember again, let me set the stage for this passage. The context was the dedication of Solomon's temple. All right, And at the dedication of Solomon's temple, Solomon actually offered a public prayer to God. 
All right, and what you see in chapter 7 is a response, it's a direct response to the prayer that Solomon has offered in chapter 6. So if you have a Bible and want to go back, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 6, starting in verse 26, I'm going to read a portion of Solomon's prayer. Listen to it carefully. Solomon said, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is a locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our father. See, here's what Solomon prays. He says, God, I know that the people are going to disobey. Right? They're going to forget even how much they sin. He says, all I'm asking God is, is at this place, at this temple, if you would, when the people come and they say, I have sinned and I want to repent of that sin, God, will you be gracious and forgive your people? God, when you judge the people and you send them off of the land, which eventually would happen because of their sin, God, if they come and they repent and they ask your forgiveness, will you, not because they deserve it, Not because they've been good boys and girls, because in fact they've been bad ones. Will you in your grace forgive? And what does God say? God says, absolutely, Solomon, because that's the kind of God that I am. Full of grace, full of mercy, even to sinners. And Solomon calls upon the memory of the, the promises that God had made specifically to the nation of Israel. You may remember right before the people entered the land, a group of them stood on Mount Ebal and another group of them stood on Mount Gerizim and they recited to one another the blessings and curses of the law. That's in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. But if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with, with, with which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And Solomon goes back to that and he says, God, you've made us these promises. And remember, when God gave the law, he didn't give them the promises of the law and say, if you obey, you're going to prosper. And the reason you're going to prosper is just because I want you to be rich. Right? Instead, what it is, is I want you to live in this land under a theocratic kingdom, right? a kingdom where God's in charge. And I want you to obey me. Why? Not just so that I can give you lots of stuff, but so that all the nations, and he had said this to Abraham too, so that all the nations will be blessed. I want all the nations to know that I am God. I want the glory to go to me. And so God blessed them as an earthly kingdom during this period of time because he wanted them to be a blessing, right? But, but here was the problem was, again, they, they really never obeyed it. 
They never were that type of shining nation in the midst of the other nations. Go read the history of the nation of Israel. And they start in on the idolatry and the immorality and the violence almost immediately. I mean, before they even get to the land. Before God even finishes giving them the law, they're breaking it. And so there are these hints throughout Scripture that God is going to begin to move in a new way. Where you no longer offer the sacrifices of bulls and goats, but instead one day for all of our sin, a perfect, eternal, once-for-all sacrifice will be made. That will pave the way for the forgiveness of all of our sin. And now what happens is, Jew and Gentile now can come together. Not just those who have the law, but Jew and Gentile can come together because Jesus died for our sin. Jesus rose again. All who trust in Jesus now have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, you now have the Spirit of God. Right? And through the Spirit of God, then you are, you are no longer called to worship at a physical temple. You are the temple. There's not a national kingdom that is called in this day and age to represent God. But there is a group of people gathered together as the people of Jesus Christ called the church. Full of the Holy Spirit living as his temples. This is why the author of Hebrews would say this. When Jesus said a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Why is that? Because we don't need it anymore. Because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Peter would call us a kingdom of priests. In other words, no longer do we go to a temple where priests mediate between us and God with offerings and sacrifices, but instead we're a kingdom of priests full of the Spirit who share the love and the mercy and the grace of God with men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation. So that's why we say 2 Chronicles 7.14, that promise does not apply directly to us today, but we have something so much better. Because the Spirit of God lives in us. And because we do have promises of prosperity and blessing and peace. But they're future promises. Where men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who believe in Jesus will gather together in an eternal temple and worship Him. So if that's not what the passage means, if that original usual understanding is is incorrect. And what does the passage mean for us? Let me offer just a few thoughts this morning. And and here's what I'm going to say. Even though the promise doesn't directly apply in the same way, there are aspects of God's character that we understand from this passage that still apply to us today. So come back to my illustration for a moment about my friend who gave his kids the 20% interest, right? So that didn't apply to me. And I was disappointed But there are things I learned about him and about his character as a dad that might affect me, right? One thing I learned is he's generous. He likes to give to his kids. Now, granted, that particular deal didn't apply to me, but because I know he's generous, he might be a person that if I found myself in need, I could go to and ask for help. 
because I know about him. I know that he is generous, right? I also learned maybe he's not great at math, right? (laughs) Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. He actually, he is great at math. He's an engineer. Maybe it is that the, the typical math that we like to use doesn't always apply to situations of generosity. And so I learned things about him that might apply to me. Same is true when we talk about this passage in relation to God. Let me give you a few aspects of God's character that shine through this passage. First one is this. God is gracious. The same God who forgave Israel time and time again is the same God who sent Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not while we were good boys and girls, not while we prayed enough, not while we followed the law, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? To save sinners. That we worship a gracious God. That all who trust in him receive forgiveness of their sin and eternal life. We also see from this passage that God listens to our prayers. I hope you don't walk out of here hearing me say, don't pray for your country or for your leaders, because that's not what I'm saying. In fact, the scripture uh, tells us to pray for our leaders, to pray for our nation. Let me show you one passage. This is also from 1 Timothy. Paul wrote, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Now look at the why for a moment. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is important. Paul says, I want you to pray for those in authority. Pray for your government. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your nation. But notice he doesn't say, I want you to pray that the Roman Empire will have strength and might and economic prosperity and will be able to win over the other nations. That's not what he says. But instead, he says, I want you to pray for kings and those in authority. And then he gives a reason. He basically says this, pray that they will leave you alone. And why? So that you can live a quiet life and share the gospel without fear of death, without fear of imprisonment, without fear of constant persecution. You pray for kings and those in authority that the environment will exist around you that is conducive to the name of Jesus going forth. See, Paul's priority was not the strength of the Roman Empire. He didn't need to actually pray for that. The Roman Empire already was the biggest and strongest empire in the world. His prayer was that the people of God would keep their priorities. That the name of Jesus would go forth to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the planet. So we pray for our leaders because God listens to our prayers. And then lastly, God does reward humility. We see that element of humility in this passage. Jesus would begin the Beatitudes with this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know that they are sinners and know they need the grace of God. Those are the ones that God reaches down to with a hand and he says, in Jesus Christ, you have forgiveness and grace and mercy and eternal life. Not because you're good, 
but because you come to God and you say, I know I need forgiveness. I know I need your mercy. James chapter four, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So in closing, let me offer a few thoughts quickly by way of application. One, do pray humbly for our world, for our nation, for God's people, that people would hear about Jesus. Secondly, when we sin, confess our sins to God and ask for his grace, not so that we can prosper materially, not so that our nation will be stronger than the other nations on earth, but instead so that we can represent Jesus Christ as he's called us to represent him. And then we trust that God works in his own way and in his own timing. In other words, we do not move the chess pieces of the globe. Only God does. We don't decide when God moves them or how God moves them. Only God decides. So we trust that God will arrange the world as he sees fit. And we ask that we will focus on the priority, not of reflecting, a particular government primarily, a particular nation primarily, a particular political party or leader primarily. But primarily, we reflect the name of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope and our prayer. I'm going to close in prayer and then we will close in worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, we pray that we would not walk away from this passage believing that if we put certain inputs into the world, that you will, you will reward us with certain outputs that we deserve. But instead, I pray we would approach you in humility, recognizing that we are sinners in need of your grace. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray that an environment would exist where the gospel can go forth. We pray that we would be faithful to carry the message of Jesus to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That we would primarily worship the name of Jesus because we know that's the name that will be worshipped for all eternity. The only kingdom that's going to matter when all is said and done is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.